0: The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. It's Sarah Burke here, and I'm the host of the Women in Media podcast. My guest today is a well-known television host, producer, and environmental journalist, but you probably know her best from her days at MTV.
1: I was told that I should go work for that one specific, like, news channel where people look like me and the demographic of viewers look like me. And, and then when I got on TV, I was... only south asian girl on tv and pop culture in canada and so i think in a in that way like i almost got very pigeonholed you know like i was told at a meeting once that i would be a lot further in my career if i was either white or black but they didn't know what to do with me
0: with us today on the women in media podcast the award-winning Aaliyah Jasmine. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I used to, you know, watch a lot of you on my television and I don't even have (laughs) cable anymore, which is kind of like a weird, weird, crazy thing for me.
1: (laughs) It's a weird time. I feel like you
0: are the majority these days. Yeah. So you moved down to LA. What year was that?
1: Um, I moved down here in 2014. So around seven years ago.
0: And you've been doing like the freelance thing. You know, I've seen you on everything from like the social, you've been doing fill-in, NBC, like you kind of cover a lot of of networks. Moving down to LA, was that something that you chose to do because you wanted to like switch up your surroundings or did it have anything to do with like the media that you wanted to be a part of down there?
1: Yeah, both. I would say, you know, I just got a really great opportunity. I got offered a job in LA um, at a time when I did feel like in Canadian media anyways there was a bit of a glass ceiling that was really really hard to break um, you know in retrospect so many things now that I know and that I've understood especially from the last few years I wish I had known or had the vocabulary to articulate back then but you know I think being a woman and a woman of color in the position that I was in um, I did feel like I was getting pigeonholed and I was I was being held down in ways that I I didn't realize so consciously back then um, and so there was an opportunity for me to come here and to produce and write and be on air and that position was with People that I found really exciting and who are allowing me to grow creatively, um, and where there was upward mobility, you know, not only upward mobility but also like lateral mobility. I mean, there was just like a lot of creative opportunity uh, down here with other with other creatives, and so I, I jumped on it um, when I got that chance. You know, I had a couple opportunities come down here, and I never did. And then um, the last one I think was just timing was right, and also it was a little bit more of a secure position. So yeah, I moved down here um, to work with NBC in 2014 and, and just ended up staying.
0: I think it was just this week. I saw you post something being like, yep, manifested that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't
1: that so funny? So as Facebook does these things, right. where like, it'll be like on this day, 13 years ago. And it did one of those for me from, I think it was 2006 or 2007, where I guess, you know, I had been coming down to LA when I worked for MTV. Um, I came down here almost, you know, weekly, if not at least three times a month, I would say to do like movie junkets and stuff like that. So I was down here most weekends, um, for years, I mean, for years, for like five, six years, I would come down here, you know, multiple times a month. And, and so, um, I guess one of those times I had just written on Facebook, like, I want to stay in LA or I hope one day I'm, I stay in LA and it's so funny to see yeah. to remember the mental state I was in where I was just like palm trees, sunshine, I love it here <laughs> and uh, and now to be like living, working, grinding in this city full time. It's it's pretty incredible.
0: So I mean, I've seen you do everything from like sports coverage to entertainment coverage to environmental journalism. Was it always about finding a way to the environmental piece that you're working on now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was always about being curious and always about storytelling. Um, The environmental part, of the puzzle, I think has always been there. If you look back at my reporting, even from my sports reporting, like I was doing, I think I did one of the first stories ever on like NHL green program or what like the NFL was doing at the super bowl to like, try to uh, encourage recycling. I mean, like those, those stories were always in all of my reporting. Um, I, you know, I, I helped create MTV impact in Canada, which was, um, an opportunity to do like kind of longer form a documentary almost series like back before there was even a vice and we did we were in the you know Canadian Amazon for that we were so I mean I think I always definitely the answer is yes for that um I think there was always a little bit of the environmental journalism but to be honest uh back then now this is before there was appointment you know this is when there was only appointment TV and you couldn't really curate the kind of, or find the kind of content you wanted. Um, environmental stories were not popular with executives. I mean, I, I think they still really aren't, but TV Agreed. executives back then used to bury my stories whenever I would do an environmental story. Um, and like the 11 PM time slot, you know, and time slots when no one was watching, uh, appointment television. And so it was really frustrating for me because I felt like I almost had to say yes to some of the more clickbaity kind of shows just to be able to get, uh, you know, a special on the air that I would produce about the environment. So back then it was a lot more of a fight. Um, but I, if you, if you look closely, yeah, I've, I've been doing that since day one.
0: What's something that you picked up from maybe your celebrity coverage or your sports coverage that is still with you today in what you do with environmental journalism?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Sarah. You know, I think no one's ever asked me this before, but I think, um, the way that you tell look with entertainment and with sports, those are the two aspects of conventional television that are still kind of really strong that people still look for content for those in, in more traditional forms. And there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason that's so successful and um, environmental journalism, I think historically has uh, often been written journalism just because there's so many facts and like, you know, data around like greenhouse gases or stats. And so um I think what I would say I've learned through the process and what I can bring through sports and and pop culture is um, telling sexy stories, for lack of a better word, but like like the way that you tell a story so that it captures the audience, to, to make it simple and to simplify these really important things. And, you know, we're seeing that more and more with TikTok. And so you're seeing these science communicators in seven seconds explain to you what, you know uh what's happening with like biodiversity loss or what's happening with the polar bears or you're seeing that now but for the last you know 15 20 years it you you couldn't find that um there was a huge uh, communication gap between what people in science understood and what the general public understood so and i think you know a great example of this is like think about your friends group like how many people in your friends group can name every Kardashian sister, or at least four of them. And now how many people in your friendship can explain to you in two sentences, what a greenhouse gas is like that inability and what's more important, right? Like, and so I think like that inability to really simplify important things um, is probably what I would say. uh, It's the storytelling that would be uh, run through all of those different
0: uh, niches. Mm, That's like part of your mission now. It is.
1: It's my entire mission. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So with this new documentary that you're working on, where have you been uh, filming this documentary? What's the vision behind it? Tell me sort of the origin story of it.
1: Yeah, you know, we uh, are really excited to be working on this documentary, um, focusing on this, this incredible story that's based here in Los Angeles around a dwindling mountain lion population. You know, not a lot of people know that um, there are mountain lions that live among humans here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, the only cougars in the city are not on the Real house Housewives of Beverly Hills. I mean, they're literally in the mountains here. And, uh, and, and you know, quite literally, one lives under the Hollywood sign. And so, uh, it's a really beautiful story of this of this unbelievable big species that's at the top of the food chain, um, and that is dwindling. I mean, they because of urbanization, because of highways, they uh, have been. uh, Scientists are saying that they might have 50 years to live unless we do something about it. And so, there's um, a bunch of different stakeholders who are coming together and they're trying to save uh, this this mountain lion's population, and they're building the world's largest wildlife crossing, and it's actually like designed based on a lot of the uh, existing models like in Banff, Canada is a huge uh, leader in the design of these wildlife crossings. So uh, it's a really exciting um, story and one of the, the key organizations that's making this happen is called the National Wildlife Federation. They have a relationship with me and asked me to be the official documentarians for this project. Um, so my company is doing that. I'm really excited to be directing this uh, film with them. Uh, and, you know, the reason that they asked me is because before this, I was working full time for NBC News for, for many years. And uh, I was on this beat and I covered like the, the mountain lions and, you know, a lot of environmental stories around the wildfires and all this for many, many years. And so I got to know all these stakeholders and I got to know, um, the cougars, to be honest, and, <laughs> and all of the, uh, and the, you know, in the national park, um, uh, park rangers that actually go out there and they collar these cougars and stuff. So for people who are listening, mountain lions and cougars are the same thing, just interchange, interchangeable terms. Um, but, uh. But yeah, so because I had been working on the story and covering the story for so many years as a reporter for NBC News, um, when I left to start my own company, uh, that's kind of how I got, uh, it's an extension of the work I was already doing, I guess.
0: A perfect partnership that sort of fell into place. So now let's talk about that company, too. So you have founded a company with your sister. And funny enough, like just from following, you know, your socials, I sort of feel like you've been quiet about this. So... Where'd the company come from? And it must be such a beautiful experience to do it with your your sister of all people.
1: Yeah, um, you know, so my sister and I have been talking about doing this for a few years and, I guess I don't know, you know, it's not that I've been intentionally quiet about it, it's more that I just wanted to be intentional with it. This is the first time that I've kind of ventured out. I've always dreamt of doing of having my own production company and I didn't know what that would look like. Um and I think that the pandemic has brought a lot of things to a lot of us and for me like the beginning of the pandemic I I started exploring this idea. Um, And it was scary for me because I've always been tied to a big network. It's always been like, Aaliyah Jasmine who works at MTV or Aaliyah Jasmine who works at Discovery Channel or Aaliyah Jasmine that works at NBC, right? Like I've always, for me, that's always been, you know, like even like employee benefits and healthcare, like I'm a child of refugees. Like these, these things have been really important. And so the idea of going out on my own and being totally freelance and what that meant and being my own boss and what that meant um, and taking taking the financial risk, exactly. Yeah, it's so intimidating, but also exciting. You know, I think when, um, I know you've had Kathleen Newman-Bruming on the show, who's a good friend of mine. And, um, you know, she, did, she wrote this incredible article a few years ago for Refinery29 um, during the Black Lives Matter um, uprising. And it was, you know, really was like at my front door here in Santa Monica and in Los Angeles. Um, And she wrote this amazing article about women in color who work in media and some of the ways that were perceived and that and that the, um, you know, kind of. stereotypical ways that the things that we fall into um not only that we're treated but also how we allow ourselves to be treated or how we present ourselves and so much of what she wrote rang true to me and she interviewed a few people who had gone freelance in that article and actually that was like a a huge inspiration to me to the idea that I could like be my own boss and and um and kind of define my own future and the kind of stories that I told and so yeah i think i think um you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I I do feel like the pandemic for me really made me look, and there's a whole bunch of other aspects, like for me health wise and everything that kind of accumulated. um, But I think all in all, I, I really needed to look internally at what I wanted to do and the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So um, yeah, I don't think it's that I was quiet about it. I think I've just been trying to be like intentional about it. And when we launched, we launched with a lot of, clients that made us sign NDAs they were really big clients and we weren't allowed to talk about the projects um, that we were working on so it's kind of been this like silent beast um, it's, yeah. it's, this, it's it's been it's incredible because it's been so successful but in a weird way it's been silent success which is the opposite of everything I've ever known in my career which has been very out there and the more people know about it that defines the success of what I've done and this is this is quite the opposite
0: it's so interesting that you mentioned that because it, it's about redefining success in a different way, and I think that's what I was getting at with my question. I never thought you were hiding it. I just noticed. I noticed that. Yeah. it was different. Yeah, and- no,
1: that's very like it's that's very intuitive of you because I I think a lot of people generally, especially like my my longtime viewers, been like, where what are you doing? Where can I watch your stuff? How do? I-? And it's it's like I've been busier than I've ever been, but I don't I can't really show anything yet, or maybe ever. So it's, it is really an, it's an interesting and very like acute uh, thing that you notice there.
0: The spotlight's a really interesting thing. And I think even, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience. I used to be like a, a live afternoon drive announcer at a rock radio station. It was live every day. There's a, an extension of you that's available to everyone on the internet, on the Instagram or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, when I started at SiriusXM, it was a lot more behind the scenes, a lot more programming. I've always had like my knack for programming. Like you've always had your love for the environment and, and that mm-hmm. type of journalism. But I did feel like really weird about being behind the scenes, not because I felt less, but because it was harder to communicate it to others, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: In media, we're sort of like trained to crave the spotlight, really, Mm -hmm. if I'm being honest and use it to help us grow whatever brand or network we're working for.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally.
0: So now let's get in a little bit more to like the project and and founding the company with your, your sister, though, because we only touched on the surface of it all, really.
1: Yeah. The founding the company with my sister is actually really cool. You'll probably like the story. So she's like completely not from our world. She does right. not. She shies away from the camera. She's not in the media world. Um, she's she was an architect. She went to Harvard University to become a landscape architect um, in grad school. And she's moved to the south of France and she works with like different countries in Europe, um, with UNESCO, with like the city of Toulouse. And she helps, like she's, um, you know, works in urban design, urban planning, landscape architecture. She like designs the future of cities to make them more green. And, you know, the idea of like sponge cities and all these things. So that's kind of like her, she's on like a totally other like caliber of of work. And when I was at NBC News, it was really interesting because I was doing a lot. I mentioned I I did a lot of environmental journalism here in L.A. And and a lot of that beat was in her world, like she kind of knew about it. And what I kept finding was like, I'll give you one very simple example to illustrate my point. But this happened a million times. But I did a story on tree canopy cover. So like you think about like when you see big trees on streets and like how they cover the streets and and give you shade. Well, the idea of tree canopy cover and how that relates to um, environmental racism. So generally in the city of LA, if you were to take like, a you know, we we got aerial shots over the city of LA and rich neighborhoods, which were predominantly white neighborhoods um, had ton of of tree canopy cover i mean think beverly hills or wherever right they they're full of green they're lush um more uh, of the uh the communities that had socioeconomic disparity were mostly black and brown communities had very little tree canopy cover, if any, um, mostly concrete. And what that means is that you have, you know, asthma rates are higher in these parts of the city. There's more shade, there's less shade in areas where people are relying more on public transportation, have to stand outside in the heat longer. Um, There's also less biodiversity. And so there's all these like different Issues less, you know, less animals. Less, so there's, it's a really interesting, um, an interesting kind of uh, trickle down effect. When you even look at how where a city invests in trees, <laughs> and like what that means for health, what that means for, um, you know, the how like. Uh, resources including like groceries or um, whatever like the cost of houses how that all trickles down and so I did this like story we were like submitting it for nominations for LA press awards and stuff and I thought I was like just the most brilliant reporter ever I just you know everyone was talking about this tree canopy cover story and I called my sister to tell her because she designed cities like this is what she does right and so I was like yeah did you have you heard of this thing called tree canopy cover and we just realized that there's like an association with more tree canopy cover in rich neighborhoods that are predominantly white and less in and like you know I'm, I'm just talking a mile in a minute and telling her and she was like yeah like I talked about this in my undergrad like this has been around for like <laughs> decades as you are not a genius like sit down Einstein wannabe and <laughs> I couldn't believe it I was like shocked and so this kept happening with all these stories that I did that I really felt like, oh my god, we're you know, we're bringing this to a mainstream audience, and she'd be like, oh like me and the the other designers and all the environmentalists, like we've known about this for a long time. And anyways, through those discussions for many years, we realized that there was this very obvious um, disconnect, uh, like an intellectual gap almost, or a communication gap between scientists and these designers and these academic circles where things were published in academic journals. And then what we were actually getting filtered down into the mainstream and what was landing um, to mainstream audiences. There was this huge gap and that was, that, was a huge disservice to the majority of the population. I personally feel it's a failure of media that we aren't able to simplify these really important um, uh, issues when it comes to how the environment affects our health, how the environment affects our um, economic status, how the environment can be played by governments in very racist ways. The fact that these these things aren't communicated to us simply by, by media and we're too busy like showing a car chase than to talk about one of these important stories, um, I think is like a huge disservice. And so we decided to jo- join forces and like I would take some of the work that she's doing and uh, try and simplify it. Um, which she has like, she is unable to do. Like she literally, if you talk to her, she sounds like you are reading an encyclopedia out loud. (laughs) Like she uses like therefore and furthermore in actual regular sentences. It's like, it blows my mind. I apologize to your entire audience. that I am nerding out about like tree canopy cover. Please don't change the channel. We can talk about sexier things. (laughs) (laughs) Want to talk about Tom Cruise? We can talk about Tom Cruise. I have great Tom Cruise stories. Just let me know.
0: (laughs) No, but like, you know, your, your partnership with your sister is really interesting in in just that, that two very different worlds came together because you're the expert in the communication and she's the expert in the science, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah.
0: How did those first conversations go um, about joining forces? You know, did she, who pitched the idea?
1: You know, I can't even remember who pitched who, but it was very organic. Like we just started talking and, you know, so there was just so much overlap. I think I went back to school a few years ago while I was working full time at NBC and I went back to get my master's in environmental journalism. Oh, that and is. I think through some of those stories of, you know, working on my thesis, um, which was also actually on the topic of the, um, of the cougars in LA and the, and the, Um, the wildlife crossing. So I've been part of the story for a really long time, needless to say, and I think talking about some of that, like the science perspective on this and her brain, the design perspective and us kind of talking about communication, like it just really naturally and organically happened. And um, we were both going through our own personal journeys of moving to new cities, her in France and me here in LA and, and working on our own health issues that we were both dealing with. And I think we both just wanted something that we could really believe in and and pour our hearts into. And honestly, like we started telling a few people that we were thinking about doing this idea and like that people we really, really trusted in very high up positions in our network um, just. We're loving the idea. I think our, the feedback we got right at the top, was just so positive that we realized how much we needed it. And I will say this too, um, in both of our worlds, both in the design world and in the environmental science world, um, the people that were most predominantly vocal about um, like environmental design or conservation um, didn't look like us. Uh, You know, I think that a lot of people forget that even though, you know, when you look at the statistics about climate change, they are affecting um, communities of color, black and brown communities first and the most. Yet the environmental movement, especially in North America as a whole, is predominantly a very uh, wealthy and white movement. I mean, and and it kind of makes sense, right? Who can afford Teslas? Who can afford to put solar panels on their homes? Who can afford whole foods? And so uh, for us, it also made sense to bring non-Western narratives to the table, um, which is Elisa's specialty. She she does a lot of like um, heritage work. So I think for us, it was also really important as women of color to have our voice at the table, but also to be able to bring a diverse set of voices to the table and stories to the table. Um, I think that was really, really like exciting, uh, an exciting opportunity for us. Um, So yeah, that it kind of all just felt like it, Was the right thing, you know, like, I think Sarah, you probably like, and for women in the media who are listening to this podcast, a lot of our lives feel like we are swimming upstream, you know, like we are like, I feel like we are constantly like pushing, pushing, pushing. And it's like, nothing comes easy, right? Like we're really, really, really pushing. And I, I think that for the first time in my life, it didn't feel that way. I was like, I heard Oprah talk about like finding your flow. And I'm like, girl, like if I had millions of dollars, I'd find my flow so easy. But like in my life, flow does not work like that. But like for the first time, I was really like finding my flow. And it just it just felt like the universe was like guiding me kind of. So um, it's for the a, first time in my life- it was
0: totally like with a yeah. mission, with a mission. Totally. And that's, that's exactly what Kathleen, you know, who you mentioned and I spent so much time talking about is like, instead of attaching yourself to a network or a product, it's about your mission. Because if you follow your mission, mm-hmm. you will be guided in the right direction, no matter what. Right. Totally. So, quickly I'm looking at your logo so is it Lily? Am I pronouncing it right? Lily, Lily, Lily. yeah, like a flower,
1: but spelled L-I-L-I, yeah.
0: Okay, so where did you get the name from? But I can see how there's like maybe some architecture in the logo. Yeah, I like <laughs> can it. you I like- see
1: that? Yeah, Alisa designed it. Um, it was, you know, my sister came up with it. It's, uh, our names are Aliyah and Alisa. Um, I named her, she's eight years younger than me. And I, as an eight-year-old thought that it made sense that, you know, Y comes before Z in the alphabet bet. So she's just has my name, but with it. <laughs> z instead of a y um but the li is in the middle of both of our names so um you know it's lily and it represents a flower which um you know the symbolism behind a lily is is um is pretty incredible in both design and in environmental science and so we just felt like it was this is my this is what what happens with my sister it's like at least i don't really care what the name is like let's just like something easy to remember and that will fit into like you know a hashtag um and then she'll send me like literally she will send me and if any of you have like friends who are like academics who probably relate to this but I'll wake up the next day because of the time zone and my whatsapp messages will have like 42 unread messages and it's just like literally like it's an academic paper (laughs) overthinking (laughs) overthinking all possible names for our company and I was like really don't care like just pick something and if you wanted to call it like ANA productions, I would have been fine with. Like, I have literally don't care. Like, what's the content we're making? We don't know. Like, and she just like, I will have to, I have to say like, we just work very differently. But the first like three months of our working relationship was just like all about like, what is the logo going to look like? What is our name going to be? Like overthinking the design of everything. And I'm like, let's just start production. Like, let's just use the type A. <laughs> let, yeah, Let's just start doing this. Um, so I think, you know, for any of the, for anybody who, who really wants to know like the deep academic reasons and meaning. There's probably some like hydrological reason in here, um, you know, at her, at Elisa Savani on Instagram. And you can ask her and expect to get 42 DMs in your
0: inbox. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel instant mushroom coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with Lion's Mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms, it tastes like coffee actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to organictraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. So, you know, you started touching on being women of color in a predominantly white space, you know, lots of conversations about that on this podcast. So let's go way back to your professional life starting. Okay. Did you feel um, intimidated or held back by color in your career?
1: Um, you know, I felt, I feel intimidated or held back. You know, it's so interesting because I think when you're in it, it's not that obvious what you're feeling, right? Like the microaggressions aren't necessarily like straight up racism. Um, And all those terms that we now know were not around in, you know, 2003, 2004, where I would know what that meant. So I will say that, I mean, I worked in very, um, I worked in situations where it was very, very, like talked about that when one host position became available, like if a host moved on and got a different job, you know, they would cast, like if a blonde girl left, they would cast for another blonde girl. Oh. If
0: somebody who was
1: black left, they would cast for another black person. And so it was very, very like stuff like that. So it wasn't the best person for the job or, you know, you've worked really hard. You should get this. It was um it was very much about like visually looking like, you know, a UNICEF box, um, but the behind the scenes wasn't, and I think that's another thing that a lot of people don't don't realize is like I've worked on TV shows before where you know there was a person of color, and I wasn't on the show, but I worked for this you know I worked for the the production um, where there was a person of color on TV and the person writing their jokes, um, a lot of which were black jokes, you know, for a black host were. Uh, white guys who are writing that that for her, and so, God. and I've complained about those things, and was told that I was being too serious, and I should understand comedy more, and you know, and so, like I I do feel like things like that have happened. I also feel, for me, I'm me being totally honest, like I get pigeonholed a lot, especially at the beginning of my career. Um, when I when I was first starting my career before I got MTV. Um, I was in Toronto and Toronto obviously is very, you know, diverse compared to where I grew up or, or a lot of Canada, um, but in Toronto, most people who look like me work for a certain news channel and that was just like where you saw most people who look South Asian work. And so no matter where I went to like ask, because I really wanted to work in entertainment and I was really into pop culture and that's just where I wanted to work. Um, I was told that I should go work for that one specific like news channel where people look like me and the demographic of viewers look like me. And, um, And then when I got on TV and you have to remember like in 2004 when I was on TV, like I was the only South Asian girl on TV and pop culture in Canada. And so I think in a, in that way, like I almost got very pigeonholed for that. And that was like, just, that was who I was. And that was the only identity I had. And yeah, so I think like, it's, it's always been like that when i when I really wanted to like move into sports and work more, like I was already doing sports coverage for MTV. Like I was doing pop culture sports stuff. And then I started working with TSN on some of their um productions and we did a joint show together which i created called play with aj and you know, it was one. really yeah you know, it was really exciting to be like venturing and growing and um and when i moved to the us like i i continued to to do some sports coverage for like fox sports west and such but like i've been told like even doing sports at the time You know, maybe it's changed. Maybe it's, we're all talking about race much more openly. So I think a lot of people are learning, especially people at the top and executive producers. But at the time, in the early 2000s, um, I was definitely told like that I didn't look like a sports reporter. You know, like I was told at a meeting once that- I would be a lot further in my career if I was either white or black, but they didn't know what to do with me, and so that oh, was what like to really- do with me. Mm-hmm. What a yeah. Oh yeah, like I, I will, you know, I won't say the network, but it's probably really easy to put two and two together. But I worked for a sports network here in the U.S. who wouldn't key my name on screen because they 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 would only key me AJ in my lower third on screen in the graphics. They wouldn't put Aaliyah Jasmine because they said that my name was too ethnic for an American audience. So yeah, I mean, I feel like at the time, I, like, I wouldn't have said that was specifically racist. I wouldn't say that was like, but like now you look at it and you're knowing, you know, what we've all learned as society, regardless of the tone, like this tone of our skin. Um, and I think we all know better Now, like now I could identify that as being, you know, um, as being like a microaggression or whatever. But at the time, I just felt like it was a television executive's call, you know, that my name was. And I've been told like not to tan when I went on vacation. Cause like they liked me looking more ethnically ambiguous. I was told to dye my hair blonde so that I could pass as Hispanic. I mean, I've been told all these things through my whole career and never really, like I always kind of chalk those things up. It made me feel bad about myself. There's no doubt, but I excused it because nobody blinked, and no one else in the room blinked an eye. And so I excused it as
0: just the behavior of- Something about the tough skin that you have to have in the exactly. industry, right? Yeah.
1: And never forgetting that I was- always felt super grateful and super lucky to be where I was not only in a highly competitive industry, but also as a woman of color and also as the child of refugees. Like I never wanted to take for granted that I had a paycheck and that I was putting food on the table. So I never really questioned those things. Um, but yeah, I think now knowing what I know, um, yeah, I mean, if I definitely dealt dealt with race.
0: I'm only asking this because I think that you've shared it you know, a a lot about your family on social media over the years too. And what do the conversations with your parents look like now? They must be so fucking proud of you guys. (laughs) Excuse my language.
1: (laughs) Right? Like, look what you guys have done. They are. They are. Our parents were so proud of us. I mean, you know, more. I think I was always the black sheep, but my (laughs) sister—they didn't know what what you know. Because I, you know, just like I, we started this episode talking about how I was. I manifested moving to LA. Well, I also manifested moving to Toronto. Like, I grew up in a suburb, which is now more developed, but at the time was like I lived between a cornfield and a strawberry field in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you know, our nearest city was Ottawa, which was like a 45 minute drive from us, but like moving to Toronto was like my dream. That was like the big, the big city and the big dream. And, um, and I think like when I moved to Toronto, my parents were like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to try and be in TV, like just get a regular job. You know, we didn't fight to come to this country for you to just like throw it all away or work as if, like for free, this free internship. Um, and so I I think that they never really like knew what to think of me. And I was kind of a surprise and they are very proud of me when I made it. But my my sister especially, I think has really, really made all of us proud. I mean, to think about how my parents came here with literally nothing um, from a war. Like a they they escaped a racial genocide and like moved here. And then to have their daughter go to like Harvard and us all go watch her graduation. it was like, yeah, it's mind blowing um, what she's accomplished. And, and she continues to make all of us, you know, I'm kind of like a second mom to my sister. Cause like my parents worked full time and they were never home and I was a built-in babysitter. And, um, and so I think because we have almost nine years between us, like I taught her how to draw, I taught her how to walk, I taught her how to talk. And so um, my, my sister often jokes that I was stricter on her than our Mom was, um, but uh, I think like I, I really do feel like she. I kind of, I kind of think I, I got to where I'm kind of, you know, by this. What's it, what's the thing by the seat of my pants? Like I don't know. Like fly I by, fly
0: by I, my seat of your pants. Going with I, the floor. flew.
1: I flew here by the seat of my pants. and I really don't know how I did it. It was like I think some of it was just being too naive to know that i could fail like you know really um but uh but i look at my sister and what she's accomplished and i feel like she really is a true canadian immigrant story like the dream of that story you know when you when i think of my parents coming here and what they're they hope for their future i think like seeing my sister and what she's accomplished really really does show that and so yeah my parents are super proud they're 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 so
0: sweet what's the oh sorry go ahead
1: Oh, I was just going to say, you know, like, they're proud of us, but like, I'm also really proud of them. Like, I think a lot of people don't talk about this, but when you are a child of immigrant or refugees, like you also see your parents grow because they didn't get a childhood. Um, And so like my parent, like my mom never learned how to ride a bike, you know, like they were too busy literally escaping war, trying to like find their family across the world who were like sent to different refugee camps. And like, so I think like seeing my parents and like, how my dad, my dad went back to school, got his master's, got his PhD as an adult. And my dad and I went to college at the same time. And, um, and even my mom, like she, um, was, she recently retired, but she was a assistant deputy min- uh, minister for the department of refugees and immigrant immigration for Canada. And so she presided over these immigration ceremonies where she was like swearing people in to be Canadian, which if you think about it, like 30 years ago was like or 40 years ago was her. Like that was her as a little girl coming to this country, becoming Canadian. And now she's giving that opportunity to new immigrants. And so that whole full circle for her as well. I mean, I think as as proud as they probably are of us, I think um, we're really proud of, we're really proud of them.
0: What are you most proud of in your career? And if there's a moment you can pinpoint as like the proudest moment of your career, absolutely, let's hear it.
1: Um, I mean, I hope, I hope it's winning an Oscar for this documentary. I hope it's still to come. Um, but uh, I would say, I would say, um, I've had so many great moments. I think I've been I've been really lucky to be a part of some really big shows like One Girl, Five Gays, which I think at the time on MTV was really pivotal for a lot of us who were- Pushed going a lot of boundaries. Time, pushed a lot of boundaries at that time and opened a lot of doors. Um, I think a lot of, you know, I, I conquered my fear and I did like live TV and interviewed some really big guests which were personal accomplishments like Adele or Tom Cruise or, you know, started incredible shows like Impact. Um, being on the ground in Haiti after the devastating earthquake of 2010 for discovery channel. I you know, I think if I had to choose one thing and I can only choose one thing, I did a documentary for MTV impact in Canada's great bear rainforest. And it was the moment where I decided that that was what my whole like journalism career would be dedicated to would be, telling those stories um, not only about the land and the biodiversity and the animals um, but also stories of like the indigenous stewards of that land and like the fact that they weren't getting airtime and people weren't listening to their stories and I felt like I had an opportunity to to um let them share those stories or you know have the honor if they wanted to to tell those stories on MTV which you know at the time was a very substantial television station for young people. And I I realized the power of the network I work for and the power of media, I think in those moments. Um, And so I would say that documentary probably it was called pipeline wars. And I think that was probably the thing I'm most proud of, not because it was the best rated. I actually think that got buried really, really late. I don't even know. Like I think got buried really late in in the schedule because they didn't think anybody cared about, you know, Enbridge wanting to build a pipeline in this, in like this, the last temperate rainforest in Canada. But, um, so I don't even know how much, how, how many people watched it. I don't think it was very many, but I think for me personally, that was probably my greatest accomplishment was, was that, because I think it really pivoted my whole life and my whole career.
0: What about on the flip side of that, the toughest moment that you've had in your career and perhaps it was in the spotlight.
1: Oh my God. I did an interview on... MTV live, um, which I don't know if any of your viewers are like old enough to remember that show, but it was a live show. It was one of my first shows. And I can't remember now I've like blocked it in my memory, but it might've been Bono. It might've been Eugene Levy. Like, I can't remember someone really, really big.
0: I know how you're like, it's, it was either Bono or Eugene Levy. <laughs> I was
1: like, well, I can't, it was someone like, it was some big, iconic, I like I literally can't remember it could have been state, like I can't remember. It was someone. Um it was some famous epic white male. I remember. Um, and I was so nervous to interview them. It was one of my first live shows. And uh I, I had prepared and prepared. I think, I think I like, I didn't sleep for like three days. Well, I was like, prepared, I over-prepared. I just like researched the heck out of everything and all these cue cards, like had everything like ready. And I got so nervous. They like, I can't really they made some joke that I didn't get. And everybody was laughing. It was so loud and I couldn't hear. And somebody was talking in my IFB and I wasn't used to it. Um, and my, I got so nervous that my lip, like my gums got dry and my lips got dry and my top lip, my gums were so dry that my top lip actually curled under and stuck to the gums above. And I have really big, like funny rabbit teeth. So this top, this, if you can see this, this like top lip, like was stuck up here and and for like the entire four minute segment, my lip didn't come down. My entire upper teeth were fully exposed. My mouth was so dry. I couldn't swallow. And my lip was just like stuck fully exposing. I looked like I had like dentures in. it was so embarrassing. I'm and so glad
0: you can laugh about it now. Oh, oh my, my God. God.
1: That was like the worst moment in my entire career. And it was so funny because I remember like right before I went on, one of our executive producers was like this is going to be a demo reel moment like this is going to go on your demo reel for the rest of your life and like, i literally can't use it on my demo reel because i my lip is stuck to my gums worst moment ever
0: what did we learn drink though a,
1: drink a lot of water and take out of van i don't
0: know <laughs> i was gonna say like get out of your own head maybe but <laughs> yeah, sure drink but water too so- <laughs>
1: It's so, it's so hard in the moment though. Right. Like when you're, people just think like, oh, if this is what you do, it's like, it comes naturally, but like, you know, it takes work. It takes practice. Like you really have, like, I had to, I got over and I'm sure you did this too, in some way, Sarah, but like, I got over the nerves by like, in my own way. Right. Like I literally had to before I did a live show would like look in the mirror and be like, this is not a fucking big deal. Like this means I could literally like be interviewing the president of the United States. And I'd look in the mirror and be like, this is not a fucking big deal. Like, and I have to actually psych myself into how this is just a conversation. It's not that big of a deal because if I let myself feel like it was a big deal at all, I'd get, I'd get too nervous and my heart rate would just go up. And so it's really like talking myself like down and remembering that these are all just people and they're there doing a job and I'm there doing a job and it's just a yeah. conversation right
0: I haven't cried of laughter on this podcast yet but you just made
1: <laughs> Oh my god it's so it's like the visual like I, if that footage ever comes That's out good. I'll be mortified but you know maybe the maybe the tip here is like if you're really nervous like vaseline the inside of your <laughs> lip just in case because there's nothing worse than your lip sticking to your upper gums. It is
0: awful. (laughs) It's awful. What was your favorite interview of your career so far? I'm sure there's Adele. It was Adele.
1: Oh yeah. Adele. Adele. It's, it was so good. Adele. So I interviewed Adele, I think around Valentine's day and this was, it was 21 on her album, 21. And, uh, it was right before it was released and, um, it was a live studio audience. And she I had just the morning of the interview, I was getting my makeup done and I had found out that my boyfriend who was living with me at the time was cheating on me. He had been cheating on me with somebody that like I I kind of worked with. We both kind of worked with. And so it was like I found out right before I had to interview her. And so I was getting my makeup done by like Lucky Bromhead, who, you know, is an industry veteran. She does like all the um, she has makeup for like um, Shit's Creek and she's uh, for Catherine O'Hara. And she's, she's incredible. If you work in the industry, you probably know lucky. She's an incredible um, makeup artist slash psychologist. And so she like had me in her chair and she just basically looked at me and was like, if you're going to cry, cry now. Because if you cry after I do your eye makeup, I will kill you. <laughs> and so uh, I'm like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And all of a sudden I just started like bawling my eyes out. And at that moment, Adele walked into the makeup room. She had her own makeup room next door and she had her own like green room, but she walked in and in her English accent, which I won't try to do. She was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I, I, we just needed a curling iron. And I thought you might have a curling iron in here. And and I was just like, no, don't worry. Like I just found my boyfriend's cheating on me and I'm like crying it out. Oh, and I should say that before I interview a musician, especially, I will always have their music on repeat. So her music was like playing playing in the, in the background. And so she immediately heard me say that I had just found out this news, and she stopped and she was like, "Turn my music off! You'll slit your wrists if you keep <laughs> listening to this while you are you're like processing this news." So she actually sat there and like put on another playlist, took her music like off, and sat there with me and like talked about how much of a jerk my like you know my That's boyfriend dumb. was it was so awesome. And she just hung out for like 20 minutes. And then when we went on stage, um, we laughed about our makeup room conversation and talked about like, who was worse for her 19 boyfriend or 21 boyfriend. And we like totally bonded. And she was, and then she dedicated like a couple songs to me when she played it from (laughs) the Sonic temple. And she's awesome. Like, I wish that we had like I wish that like Instagram and everything was as popular then as it is now. Cause I feel like we would have just like become BFs.
0: The little connections that you make with people along the way as you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. So interesting, but you know what, that's a perfect example of someone literally writing an album about heartbreak and yes. you guys bonding over it for a great interview.
1: She was so amazing. Who's your like favorite
0: interview oh, ever? No one ever asked me that. Um, <laughs> I'm a really big nerd, but my favorite band is Weezer. I've never interviewed <laughs> Rivers, but I have interviewed like the the two other founding members of the band. And I mean, it was thrilling, but it wasn't Rivers, you know, uh, who, who's been amazing.
1: It's so hard when you interview people that you really like, right? Like I remember like, I went on tour with like Motley Crue and I loved Motley Crue. And afterwards it's just like, right. And it's just like, it's hard though. Cause like once you start getting to know guys, it's like, like it's not that you don't like them anymore. You don't like their music, but they're just not on the pedestal that you might've put them on before. So it's also like hard interviewing your idols.
0: Yeah. A big, really exciting one for me last year was Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers.
1: Oh why was that one of your favorites?
0: I love Tom Petty. So it's like the next closest thing to Tom Petty for me. Yeah. Um, I recently interviewed Natalie Hemby. She's badass behind the scenes, but she put out a really great solo record and it's like all out there. It's, it's got like nineties rock vibes.
1: It's funny too. Right. Cause it's like sometimes the people who surprise you the most, It's not because necessarily of like how famous they are. It's just like, some people are so real to interview. And when you can just have like a kick-ass conversation, you feel like you could go like have a martini with this person. Like they will always stick in your memory more than like the most famous person who just came in and out. Right. Like there's so many people who just come in and out and they don't care. And there's, you're like another, something else to cross off their to-do list and other people really make you feel like, like seen almost. Yes,
0: for sure. Jason Bonham so John Bonham's son that was a cool one too to hear him talking about growing up as Led Zeppelin was on the rise around these guys oh my god Robert Plant and Jimmy Page it's like what
1: you know what's so funny so like I um you'll probably love this story so I got to interview James Hetfield from Metallica and I was a huge Metallica fan and this is like I think like you'll you'll appreciate the story but um we were talking about how he has kids now and I'm like imagine what it's your dad's Metallica, like growing up like that, growing up on those, on that tour or whatever. And so we started, he brought up the kids, he brought up like his kids you know what his kids think of him and if they like they care about him or whatever and I remember saying you know like when I was growing up and I would listen to Metallica um and you can imagine like a little brown girl like in a suburb and I'm listening to Metallica my dad does not know what's just happened like he just regrets coming to Canada like in an instant right like he was just like what is happening upstairs and I remember my dad just get so mad and he would yell and he would like turn down the like stereo and he'd be like you know you can't even understand the words that they say like why do you listen to this like I don't understand the words
0: dad they're like, saying Master, master. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You just
1: have to listen beyond the you know, mean, if you had a more expensive stereo, you could actually hear the words separate from the music. But um so I was telling James's story and he's like, honestly, I do the same thing to my kids now. He's like, they listen to Kanye West. So so loud and it drives me crazy. And I'll run into the room and turn down the rap music and be like, you can't even understand the words they're saying. And I literally peed in my pants dying that he told me that story. So I love
0: that. Well, you've certainly had some great interviews over the years. I'm like almost blanking, like, you know, like my most like pop culture interviews is what I'm blanking on right now because so many of my interviews have been in like the triple A world lately. Mm -hmm. But like Jan Arden, I just talked to Jan Arden. She was fucking amazing. She's
1: awesome. She's such a
0: force.
1: Everything in her personal life, animals, everything. everything. I mean, she's, yeah, she's a force.
0: I had a feeling you might appreciate all those things about Jen. Oh, yes. oh yes. (laughs) You thought about some women you want to nominate?
1: Okay. I think I know who I'm going to nominate.
0: Community is a theme that comes up a lot on the podcast, especially like lifting other women up or, you know, there's been some stories that are the opposite of that. Um, And before I ask you to nominate a few women, you know, who you admire and have some stories that would be really great to hear on this podcast. um, What's your experience been like working alongside women in the industry?
1: Oh, you know, it's so funny. I think that I've seen kind of like and flows and it just depends on where you are and who you're working with and what the work culture is. But I've had some really great experiences with women um, working in this industry. I think there are obviously cases where there's a lot of competition and, you know, we all know that there are very few jobs on the table, but more and more, I think, especially the last few years, I feel like women are really coming together and we're bonding. And when I was at the Olympics, uh, when I was covering the Vancouver Olympics for CTV, I was um, on a team out in Whistler with Melissa Grello, who is now a host on the social. And I was really worried because that was a highly competitive position, and we were both out there, and we were two women, and I didn't know which we had never worked together, and I didn't know what she was going to be like with me. Um, And she was incredible, and we bonded right away, and we helped each other out, and we formed this alliance. And to this day, you know, however many years, decades later, (laughs) whatever, we are—we're so so close. She's one of my best. French is one of my bridesmaids. And so I feel like, uh, I know you've had a lot of women on this show who are close friends of mine as well. And I think a lot of us are finding each other and forming alliances and helping each other by putting other women on your shoulders and climbing. Because when When somebody in your circle or your connection succeeds, I think we all reach out and and help each other. And so we're starting to realize more and more that it's, um, that we're all in this together. It's like the LeBron James effect, you know, like when he got successful, he like brought everyone with him. And I feel like that's what we inherently, um, most of us inherently want to do as women. Obviously not all women are like this, you know, we're not all the same, but, um, my experience has been more positive and more in that kind of, um, atmosphere than, than not you know I was actually going to nominate another one of the girls from our from my bridesmaids crew who um I'm going to nominate two two girls for you um two really close friends who work in media one of them I think um you'll love talking to because she's also a woman of color and is completely reinventing herself um but has so many good stories about I don't know anyone who's interviewed more celebrities than her um Justin Bieber I think on camera asked her to be his girlfriend. Um, but Tanya Kim.
0: Okay, yeah,
1: yeah. So I think I nominate Tanya Kim and I also nominate Julie Stewart Banks. Okay. Uh, Julie and I used to work together at Fox sports. And when I moved to LA, um, she, I was like, Hey, I'm in LA and I don't have any friends Someone <laughs> on like Twitter. I think I put that on Twitter and she wrote back and she's like, oh, I grew up watching you. I'm like from Canada, but I like, I live in the States now and I work for Fox. And at the time I was working for NBC. And so we became friends and eventually I worked at Fox too. And um, she is so awesome and so supportive and nobody knows sports like Julie. I mean, this girl not only does she like know everything about hockey but she also plays hockey and she plays hockey with like literal like former stanley cup champions and olympians like she, she she plays on hockey teams with like all boys she's awesome um so i think that and she's done really incredible things during the pandemic how she has shifted her career and answered what the times have called for is not only like genius in terms of media minded, but also I feel like she's super entrepreneurial. So I think you guys will really um, hit it off. So I nominate TK and Julie Stewart. Thanks.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think a lot of people have been wondering what you've been up to. So uh, hopefully this, you know, answers some questions and keeps eyes peeled, ears peeled for I've been,
1: um, I've been not only have I been becoming an LA Cougar, but I am trying to save them. So
0: (laughs) There you go. There's your answer, everyone. <laughs> but yeah, you'll have to keep us posted, um, you know, when when we can watch the work that you're producing right now. So uh, for anyone who is looking for a little more information on uh, the new company, Lily, that we were talking about and, you know, the new mission that Leah Jasmine has attached herself to, uh, all the links in the episode notes. And I am sure that it's going to be great when it comes out.
1: Thanks for having me, Sarah. And congratulations on the show. And like everything you're doing on the show, to prop up other women in media. I think it's, it's really incredible.
0: You can follow along at Aliyah Jasmine on socials. And if you want to check out some links to her work, I've got that in the episode notes. Hope you enjoyed Pass along this episode to someone you think needs to hear it. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And uh, I'll be back at you with a new episode in a couple weeks. I'm Debbie Travis and I'm Tommy Smith. and this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe
1: on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Wish us
0: luck.